Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> I, I tripped tell, over that a little bit, but I can tell you're you're cracking up. You're like, oh, so yeah, I, I actually, just, I actually see what he's doing there. <laughs> I know, I see where this is going. Yeah, I mean, but I think I just, that'll play out fine. I, when, I know, always love though, you're like that. You're surprised by terrible puns. Like it's great. <laughs> well, no, I think it. I think it. It'll work, particularly like the second one, because I I think I I might have turned it up a little too much for the last uh, dot. But here we go again. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar. A place where pop culture creatives discover design icons that make us tick. And we share a few cocktails in the process. Yep. Nothing sets the stage quite like title design. Today we explore two different examples of amazing work that went above and beyond to get viewers excited about each episode of a TV series. So make sure your streaming accounts are paid up. The popcorn is popped and you have the right amount of rum to coke, because it's time once again to take a seat at the bar. Okay, Todd, uh, so let's jump into this. We're talking titles for television series. Now, mm -hmm. you know I have professed my love of The Dukes of Hazard. And that opening title sequence when we were discussing the hobo typeface. So that's true. We can't trod back over that well-worn ground again. No, no. As no. much as we would love to. There has to be at least one more that you really like. I thought about it, and um, I think we have to go a little bit deeper than the Brady Bunch. That would be my other favorite. Um, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to talk today about a show called Carnival. Now, mm -hmm. some listeners may have seen the show. Others may have heard of it. Um, some folks, uh, you know, I'm sure have never seen it um, because it's it's not a new show. In fact, it's, uh, it's close to 20 years old. So what I would like to do is talk a little bit about this show and then I can start to jump into the titles and why I feel they were so great. Um, because I think they're great technically and, and visually. They're amazing. But they also mm -hmm. really weave into the spirit of the show itself. Um, you know, which is just amazing. Elliot, was Carnival, was that... Um was that on a, a network or was that on no. a paid platform? Yeah, so it was on HBO. It was oh. on HBO. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got I've got a show uh, that also will be on HBO. So this would be great to compare. Ooh, these. okay, yeah. So I guess you and I both are willing to shell out whatever the extra ten bucks a month is for right, right. <laughs> for better but TV not, credits. But I've not seen Carnival, so I'm eager to learn more about it. Yeah. So let me just at a very high level just tell you what it was all about, like who was responsible for it. But then I, I feel, uh, like I said a second ago, we need to get into the show. Otherwise, what I'm going to describe mm -hmm. is not going to make a lot of um, sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this title sequence was created by a shop in Southern California called A52. So A52 is a visual effects and design company in Los Angeles. And um, in addition to the very rich visuals, there was this amazing music from Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman. Um, so they were the musicians for this episode. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so then you definitely have piqued my interest, Elliot, because you know where Wendy and Lisa came from, right? You know how they got their start. It wasn't Carnival? Well, no. Um, they were hired by His Purple Highness. 
they were they okay. were close associates to Prince, and they were part of Prince and the Revolution, and great great musicians, great musical families, still very uh, productive today. But I didn't know that they did the carnival uh, carnival opening. So now you really got my interest peaked. Yeah. Now before you were on the fence, right? Well, I, no, I was really going to watch it anyway, but now that I know that <laughs> Wendy and Lisa were uh, involved. Okay, that was just the, the cherry on top of the Sunday. Got it. Uh, absolutely. Okay, so let's get into the show really, really quick. Um, and, uh, and and then we can start to unpack some stuff here. <laughs> and I assume that, that Prince also was not a secret ghostwriter on this show. Well, who knows? I haven't heard that. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, we'll see. Uh, let's let's yeah. see what uh, memories get get sparked here. Okay, so uh, this show was on HBO between 2003 and 2005, and the production values of this show were absolutely incredible. A lot of digital effects, um, and I'll explain. You know, it was set during the Dust Bowl, so they had to really have all these sort of um, effects of that time period. There was also magic involved, so naturally there were some special effects there as well. And at the time, if my memory serves me correctly, it had the largest per-episode budget of any show on television at $4 million per episode. Yeah, so Whoa. keep in mind that was close to 20 years ago, and mm. it was four million bucks an episode. And that wasn't going into the actors' pockets. That was going into mostly, I think, the production of this show. So HBO but it was, was only on for two years. Yes, and and wow. I'll, I'll I'll yeah. So it was supposed to be six seasons. It was uh-huh. the creator had come to this idea of there were going to be three books, and each uh-huh. book would be two seasons long but the problem is it was very expensive to produce well Mm. and over time because it was really um it wasn't a show you could jump into the middle of and start tracking with the Mm. Mm storyline so uh and and you got to keep in mind at the time uh you couldn't binge watch like you can now there was no netflix there was no hulu so if you didn't catch this on hbo uh, either when it debuted or as a rerun, or you know, occasionally there'd be like a marathon or something. It was very difficult to catch up to what was going on. Okay, mm. so mm-hmm. so we'll get a little bit more um, into that in, in just a little while. Um, so as I started to mention a minute ago, the two seasons of Carnival that were produced they take place in the Depression era Dust Bowl between 1934 and 1935. Okay, and there are two plot lines that happen and then start to converge over the the arc of this show, okay? So the first one involves a young man uh, named Ben Hawkins, who is played by Nick Stahl. And he has these strange sort of healing powers. And um, he joins a traveling carnival when it passes near his home in Milfay, Oklahoma. So again, we're talking Dust Bowl. We're talking (laughs) the Great Plains. So there is nothing keeping this guy in this town, right? Soon thereafter, Ben begins having these surreal dreams and visions, which set him on the trail of a man named Henry Scudder, who was a drifter Mm. who crossed paths with the carnival many years before, and who apparently also possessed some unusual abilities that were similar to Ben's. Okay, Mm. so there's a lot to unpack here. And that's only the first of the two plot lines. Okay, I haven't even talked about the second one yet. Yeah, so I hope you're you're taking really, really good notes as I'm talking. I'm trying to follow along. Yeah, okay. You have your yarn and your thumbtacks and your photos and your bulletin board, right? You're plotting all this out. Yeah, exactly. I got my protractors and everything. (laughs) Yeah, okay. And then the second plot line revolves around a character named Brother Justin Crow, uh, played by Clancy Brown, who... A lot of folks will know as the head guard in Shawshank Redemption, right? So that gives you an idea of sort of the gravitas of this figure, right? So Mm -hmm. he's this Father Coughlin-esque Methodist preacher. He lives with his sister Iris, who is played uh, by Amy Madigan. Again, this, this show is so well cast. And they are in California, so they are west of where Ben is in Oklahoma. However, he shares... Ben's prophetic dreams and slowly discovers the extent of his own unearthly powers, and those include bending human beings to his will 
and making their sins and greatest evils manifest as terrifying visions. So he thinks, however, that this isn't evil. He actually thinks he's doing mm -hmm. God's work, right? He was mm -hmm. anointed mm -hmm. with these abilities. So Brother Justin fully devotes himself to his religious duties, and he's not realizing that his ultimate nemesis, Ben Hawkins, and the carnival are inexorably drawing closer to him, you know, in California. All right. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. <laughs> so very, very dense. Very rich. Very, very dense. Okay. So I've kind of given you an idea of, of just a handful of the characters, why there's this traveling carnival going around the the geography, the, the time period, all these sorts of things. So Carnival's 1930s Dust Bowl setting required significant research and historical consultants to be convincing. But HBO, again, had the deep pockets to do this, as we talked about, four million bucks an episode. Okay. So I want to give an idea of some of the extent to which they tried to make this authentic. Like, this is pretty incredible. Um, because that authenticity will then drip over directly into these opening titles. Okay. 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 So to give a sense of the dry and dusty environment of the Dust Bowl, I mean, this is the Dust Bowl. Smoke mm -hmm. and dirt were constantly blown through tubes onto the set, <laughs> onto the actors, <laughs> onto all the props, like, you know, just everything. So not $4 an easy... million dollars worth of smoke and dust and dirt. Yeah. I, I hate, hate to be the guy in craft services. <laughs> you know, more potato salad, Ben? <laughs> you know, poof. <laughs> um, <laughs> then the actors' clothes themselves were ragged. They were always drenched in dirt. And the show had approximately 5,000 people costumed in it the first season alone. 5,000 oh, people. Whoa. I mean, that's insane. And then to prepare for the production, the creative team listened to 1930s music. So we talked about the music a few minutes mm -hmm, ago. Mm -hmm. The radio, we talked about Father Coughlin, you know, what was being broadcast across the country. And then they read old Hollywood magazines to get the period sound and language and slang all accurate, like, mm -hmm, the you know, mm -hmm. the production of the time. Um, the art department also did extensive research. Again, as we talked about with our books episode, Wikipedia really wasn't around. We didn't have access to all the stuff we have now. We didn't have iPhones in our pockets where we could just look something up if we weren't sure. So right, these guys right. had to go out and find old catalogs. And among them, they found an original 1934 Sears and Roebuck catalog. And so they uh -huh. were looking at this for what would have been available to these guys at the time in this part of the world. And so they were going to flea markets, they were going to antique stores, and they were looking for all these things that were very period-specific. And then aside from the show's supernatural elements, they actually got a historical consultant to look at everything, and they said, "What you know, what do you think of this? And apparently this person said the accuracy was spot on in terms of how the characters were living their lives, what their wardrobe was like, the types of things they ate, the types of places mm -hmm. they lived, mm -hmm. the vehicles they drove, and just the stuff they had, the the belongings that they would have had at the time. You know, again, things that you would get in these little towns, things you could get through a Sears and Roebuck catalog. So, right, right. Um, so they were really, really trying to be very, very accurate. And the reviews actually bore that out. Okay, so the reviews said things. There were superlatives like uh, for the production design, it was impeccable, it was spectacular, and it was an absolute visual stunner. Mm -hmm. There were there were these visual effects that were done uh, because, of course, there was some supernatural activity, right? So they had to accurately depict this stuff. Well, I say accurately. What they had to do was they had to make it look believable. You know, it couldn't be cartoony yeah, lightning yeah, or, yeah. or really terrible puppetry or any of these sorts of things. So naturally, uh, when they could avail themselves of CGI, and this wasn't early CGI, but it, it wasn't nearly as advanced as it is uh, currently. Right, right. So what started to happen here? I'll just whet your appetite as we prepare for the title sequence itself. So Carnival the Show, okay, in 2004, it won four Emmys for art direction, cinematography, costumes, and hairstyling. So going wow. back to the investment, the amount of money that they put into everything, they were, you know, the, it, like I said earlier, it wasn't like going into uh, some actor's pockets or anything like that. It was being borne out in what was uh, being seen on the screen by the viewers. And 
talking about what's seen on screen. I'm going to whet your appetite, and then I want to get into your show that okay. was also okay. on HBO. Okay. So the opening title sequence, also in 2004, won an Emmy for Outstanding Main Title Design. So that is going to be my cliffhanger because you're probably going to know what they did and how they did it. Okay. Oh, sounds cool. Well, uh, you have sold it even more. And, you know, as you were telling that story, Elliot, I was thinking... Wow, you know, a period piece is difficult to do um, mm-hmm. accurately. Obviously, they were swinging for the fences and wanting to do it in, in a way that would be most convincing. And when you're blending that period and that much dust and dirt to also incorporate CGI where it doesn't appear fake uh, has got to be a real challenge. So that is pretty that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to hear more. And as I said, I uh, I picked a show's opening credits that I absolutely love. And the show that I picked was also on HBO and also near that same time. It actually started a little bit earlier. And uh, this the show I picked started in 2001, and it's Six Feet Under. Oh, yeah. What a great show. Yeah. A little bit about that. It was created and produced by Alan Ball for HBO. As I said, started in 2001, and it went to 2005. So uh, the same time Carnival ended. And Alan Ball was just coming off the huge success of American Beauty, if you remember that, in 1999. He had written and directed American Beauty, which was... Also, a great movie, heavily influential, and he had this idea of a family-run funeral home that was sort of the foundation of these kind of crazy stories. Death brought people together, and so he took his first draft to HBO and met with Carolyn Strauss, who was uh, head of HBO programming at the time, and her quote was, you know... This is really, really good. I love these characters. I love these situations, but it feels a little safe. Could you just make it a little more fucked up? (laughs) (laughs) And Alan Ball said, that's not a note that you would normally get in Hollywood. And he thought, wow, that gave him the free range to go deeper and go a little darker and get a little bit more complicated. So... Um, hats off to HBO for saying push the work on that. That's great. And so in talking about the show, as you just said about Carnival, it was consistently high rated. Uh, Six Feet Under was consistently at the top of many best of lists. So just Time, The Guardian, Empire. It won scads of awards, Emmys, Golden Globes, SAG Awards, Peabody Awards. Uh, including for titles, uh, it won uh, Emmys. And the show, as I said, is about a family that runs a funeral home, and they go into a tailspin after the sudden death of the patriarch of the family, um, who was really the sort of lifeblood, if you don't mind the pun, of the funeral home. (laughs) And as luck would have it, this patriarch... Nathaniel Fisher is his name. Mm-hmm. And I'm not giving anything away. He dies literally in the yeah. first 30 seconds <laughs> of, the, of the yes. first show. So it's, it, it is the impetus for the show. Um, he consistently comes back to visit members of the family to tell them they're doing okay or they're not doing okay or <laughs> that things are wrong. And so that in itself is kind of a funny premise. And as I said... It was from Alan Ball, who did American Beauty, who had some of the same type of odd things that are beautiful, quirkiness. And Six Feet Under fell in line with that because the show itself, it was about both the loneliness and the beauty and the quirkiness and the humor of death. Mm -hmm. And the opening titles are just metaphor rich in describing that. They were designed by Digital Kitchen out of um, Washington State, 
And the director was a guy named Danny Yout, who was then with Digital Kitchen. He now runs his own digital shop. But what's really cool is, and what struck me, is how the show's premise kind of gets introduced every week through the opening credits. And exactly the way you said before, this wasn't a time where you could binge watch everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, They released a new show every Sunday night, so you had to watch it then. And what I loved about this, and I'm just, I'll describe the titles a little bit to you. Um, The first thing we see is a black raven flying across this cloudless sky and the the color of the sky it feels like it's winter time it's kind of grayish blue sky but very isolated black raven flying across the camera tilts down to a lone tree that's at the top of this grassy hill so if you think about it you've got sort of grayish blue rectangular shape at the top you've got this kind of grayish green rectangular shape at the bottom connected with this tree. And it looks like a Mark Rothko painting to me. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they use this tree is because that's a symbol of decomposition and rebirth. You've heard of the expression, the exquisite corpse. where the remains of something grows something else. And uh, the head of Digital Kitchen at the time, a guy named Paul Mateus, uh, said, just as everything we have was given to us by prior generations, then we return to the earth. So the tree metaphor worked. It starts with this tree, as I said, and it was shot all in Washington, near Lake Washington. And... What's funny about that is they couldn't find any evergreen trees to use because it was the middle of winter in Washington and most trees didn't have leaves. They ultimately found one by a Seattle resident and they bought it for $400. And the tree is actually held up by wires in the the graveyard scene, which you can't see. Obviously, they took those out. But this tree that is so iconic for this great show was dead and propped up when it was being used. <laughs> how how big was it? Um, you, it was, you know, probably 25 feet. Um, they found smaller ones. It was a type of holly bush that didn't grow very tall. And they happened to find one that was tall and went up and knocked on the door and asked the residents if they could buy it. <laughs> mind, mind if I dig and, up your front yard? <laughs> and, no, it wasn't. I don't even think it was dug up. I think it was just chainsawed down. Oh, wow. Okay. And then propped up with wires. Oh, and, man. You know, okay. Back in, the, back in the Queen Anne Hill section of Seattle. So that's the... <laughs> That to me is kind really of funny. is, uh, you know, uh, only appropriate, I guess, a dead tree in a cemetery for exactly I'm, I'm talking about death, right? So I imagine that once they chainsawed it down, they had to be like, all right, we got to commence to filming this really fast because this tree's not going <laughs> to last. Clock's ticking. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we pan down, we see the iconic tree at the top of the hill, and then you hear this ting of a musical hit. And in the foreground, there are these clutching hands that rise up into view and they separate kind of quickly. It's like ramped up speed. And then we cut to a shot of two hands rubbing together. It takes us a second to kind of realize that these are hands of a worker that are being scrubbed. And, Mm. uh, you know, obviously the hands of a mortician to prepare body. Then you see beautiful close-up shots of toe tags and gurney wheels and bodies that are fading into white. Um, Just really expressive uh, cinematography uh, that follows along with the music. And uh, I'm going to actually talk about the music in just a second because like you were saying with Carnival, the music to Six Feet Under is is wonderful. Mm -hmm. So along with these these are metaphors for death. And Danny Yount said, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I, I saw a talk that he did, and I'll post a link to that. And he said, we started with kind of the tried and true metaphors of death. And I had always resisted that because I thought I had to do something better, had to do something smarter. And he said, what I've learned is start there, start where you start and then continue to challenge yourself. So don't get hung up on the idea of 
you couldn't think of a smarter metaphor for death, put something in and then continue to revisit that. Right, chip away at it. Right, right, which is a great idea. Uh, and one of those metaphors that he used was a dying bouquet of lilies, which mm. dies in ramped up speed, which is just, again, it's beautiful to look at and you know that it's dying. And obviously it's a metaphor for the, the death in the show, the beauty and the death in the show. So finally we get to the end. This is only about 90 seconds of an intro and we see uh, a close up of the raven and we're back to the hill with the iconic wired up tree and the raven flies past and then as the raven flies past the tree sprouts this tap root kind of in the shape of a casket a box if you will and the words six feet under fade up as the screen goes white which leads into the episode and if I remember correctly, it's it's kind of subterranean, right? So you're yeah, kind of like yeah, your yeah. Rothko, the tree, the roots are animated and it's kind of growing into the ground and it's like brown soil, dark soil, the root is white, right? And, right, uh, yeah. right. So again, it's like, it's that, is it decomposed? Is it growth? But it forms a, a border around the logo, the show's logo, but it kind of alludes to a, a coffin shape or at least a grave shape. So... You know, really simple, elegant, beautiful imagery. And one of the things that's also interesting is there's a director's cut for this. And we'll post this as well, because what Danny Yao wanted to do is when the purpose of opening titles is to give credits, right? Yeah. So it has the, the stars and uh, the cast and crew. And what he wanted was a little type effect to happen. He wanted them to slowly decompose and float away like Ooh, ashes would. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, so it's really sweet. It's not overdone. It's really, it's beautiful. The type is very elegantly done. HBO chose not to use that version for the one that they went with because at the time we just had After Effects and to create that every week when a crew could change, a, oh, you know, a cast member could yeah, change, was going to be really that. time prohibitive. Yeah. But, but yeah, again, the, the director's cut is uh, will be posted and you can see what that would look like. So I talked a little bit about the credits and giving you some description of that. Obviously, there's a link that will show uh, the importance of the music. And uh, a friend of mine who works, who owns an animation studio and does a lot of television broadcast design used the phrase one time that music is half the picture. And in this particular case, it definitely is. Uh, and Elliot, it sounds like it's the same with Carnival too. It sounds like the music is really supporting what the show is about. I want to hear a little bit more about that, and then I want to give you some kind of behind the scenes and reactions to Six Feet Under. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! Todd, do you think our listeners are digging this episode so far? I don't know, Elliot. There's definitely something getting shoveled around. Hey, I'll tell you what. Let's get the bartender to make us a couple of mudslides and, uh, We'll see everyone back around the table in just a minute. Hi, while we have your attention, if you want to learn more about us and the podcast, there are a few ways to do it. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. All of that is spelled out. No numbers. Kind of a long URL, so do yourself a favor and bookmark it. Once you're there, you can find links to more information about the subjects in this episode, our episode archive, and information about both of us. Wait, 
we do want people to visit, right? Well, oh, and look for us on social media. You can find those links on our website as well. And while we're at it, if you have a friend who you feel will dig on our rambling, Tell him or her what we're up to. While we can't guarantee that they will remain your friend, we can guarantee that they will listen to at least 30 seconds of whatever episode you send them the link to. (laughs) That's being a little shameless. And speaking of being shameless, it wouldn't be a proper ask if we didn't mention that if you like what you hear, you can also make a donation via our website. We have a Nigerian prince handling all transactions for us. In fact, he told us to mention that we have stickers to mail to anyone who donates $10 or more. Are we done? We're done. We're done. Just to wrap up what you were talking about really quickly, I was wondering if, and it sounds like Danny Yount went and shadowed, if I'm understanding correctly, a mortician for a day or at the very least talk to them and ask them what they do over the course of the day, right? And I think that that knowledge really, really, as you mentioned earlier, helped maybe break into this more atypical approach to representing death and the ritual of death and and what happens um, mm-hmm. when someone dies and just the profession and the customs around that. So I thought that that was really, really great that you included that. And you think about, uh, that I said, um, American Beauty, which uh, Alan Ball was just coming off of. That movie also is really about just the beauty of everyday stuff. And that's what that's what this opening credit is about. That's what the show is about. I wouldn't say it's always beautiful, but I would say it's it's dramatic and funny and it's black comedy, but it's about everyday stuff if you happen to run a funeral home. <laughs> and isn't Alan Ball British? Uh, yes, he is. So I remember when it when American Beauty came out, um, he felt that he was able to sort of parody American suburban life because he was an outsider. Right, right. And I'm sure the same thing was true with the way American culture deals with death and also the fact that this was a profession that um, I would say he's probably not intimately familiar with unless maybe as, I don't know, a mortician in his family yeah, or I don't something. Know. Yeah. yeah. So I think, again, it's this idea of like the virtue of the outsider and like your take because of what you don't know and you have to go and, and sort of suss it out and be curious about it. It leads to, you know, maybe a little bit of a more interesting solution than like you were saying, something that would just be more typical. I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. But you've described Carnival, but yes. I haven't heard about the opening credits yet. I've got now, admittedly, I have a visual in my head just from the setup, and it sounds sounds rich. It sounds like they spared no expense. So I'm excited to hear a little bit about how they introduced it weekly. Yeah. So as we mentioned, it's a Dust Bowl era, 1930s. There are people with supernatural powers. There's this authentic period look and feel. Um, So let's talk a little bit about how this title sequence came to be and the the brains behind the operation at A52. Okay, so this was a fellow named Angus Wall, and he's still working today, and I'll I'll talk a little bit more about him. Mm -hmm. So he had a history of working for another motion graphics company prior to A52, and you may have heard of this company, uh, Imaginary Forces. Does that ring a bell at all? I've heard a little something about that. I, I, I hear they're they're going to do some good stuff one day. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Let me give you a little bit of, of hope. Okay. So they, they gained a lot of notoriety when they did the titles for Seven, you know, the Brad Pitt, yeah. Kevin Spacey yeah. movie Seven. They won. That really is what put them on the map. Don't forget Gwyneth Paltrow. Too starring as the head. Yeah, the yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to give that away either. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> oh man, Todd. I mean, you're just tipping, tipping our hand. And speaking of, of tipping your hand, here's here's a few more things that this guy has gone on to do more recently. So sticking with HBO, he has worked on the titles for Game of Thrones, another little show HBO put together. Some people may have heard of. I hear that's going to do well too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it'll 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 be okay. Then he's also. Uh, 
been working with the director, David Fincher, on editing work. So, you know, not just motion graphics or title work, but he's done, um, worked on The Social Network, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, movies like that. Okay, so this guy obviously is steeped in just general, he has a great design eye, he understands narrative, you know, all these things that need to come together for these successful movie titles, right? Because it's not, it's about knowing and understanding the story, right? I think that's one of these common things that we start to pick up here. So he had three goals, <laughs> uh, one of which you actually alluded to earlier when you were talking about uh, the titles for Six Feet Under. Okay, mm -hmm. so his goals all centered around three things the opening titles needed to deliver to the viewer quickly. So, the historic era in which the show was set, we've talked about that. The supernatural aura surrounding the mm -hmm. characters and the traveling carnival. We've talked a little bit about that. Okay, so far so good. Oh, and by the way, those uh, dense storylines I mentioned, Mm -hmm. We have to get people engaged enough with everything that's going on in 90 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> right? Over this... Sounds uh, doable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, how, how do we go about Magic Carnival, Dust Bowl. Yeah. Right, yeah. The, the dirty people and the authentic uh, stuff they own and, and everything right. else, right? So how do you do that? If you were presented with that opportunity, what would you do? So this goes back to what I was saying a second ago about tipping your hand. So the opening title sequence itself begins with a deck of tarot cards. Oh. So if you think about something mystical, I mean, tarot cards are just one of these iconic props, right? We've, we, even if we right, don't know right. everything about them, you know, just like playing cards or some of these other things, when you see tarot cards, you know what they are. And you generally know sort of the, the setting in which they're producing themselves, right? right? Right, So these tarot cards, a deck of tarot cards starts to fall into this, the sand, you know, against the dust bowl, right? So this sandy mm -hmm. background. This is when things very quickly start to get remarkable. So the camera, like, so you're, you as the viewer, the camera, the vantage point moves in and starts to enter inside of one card and a whole world opens up presenting layers of artwork and footage from iconic moments of the American depression era, soup lines, building the golden gate bridge, Jesse Owens and Babe Ruth, these uh -huh. iconic sports figures. Okay. So then the camera kind of backs up and sweeps out and moves into a different card and it repeats this several times and the viewer is there coming in and out of all these different layers within these tarot cards. And then the sequence ends with a camera shifting from the judgment tarot card mm -hmm. to the moon and the sun. And so that, of course, for people who know tarot and, and astrology and those sorts of things. So that's the devil and that's God. Okay, so oh, the, the okay. tension between good and evil. Then the wind comes, again, it's the Dust Bowl, and blows all the cards away and the sand that had been resting underneath the cards. And the logo to the show, the carnival title, gets revealed. And so you had such a great quote that music is half the picture. Right. So while all of this is happening, this ominous and sort of American Gothic string and piano based music is playing and it is so well married to the visuals mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the two of these things together really sets the tone for each episode of the show and angus wall mentioned that each card represents a different element of this storyline that we've been talking about right so mm. he not only was thinking about it at a very high level, but he was obviously talking to the creators, trying to understand what the intent was, and then really trying to provide these clues in these opening um, title moments. So it's really great, both visually, it's just beautiful, but then in terms of the meaning, and so it's very, very multi-layered. But when mm -hmm. you look at it, and of course we'll have the link on our episode page, it is just lush, and it is immersive and and it is and i don't use this word often but i think it is appropriate here it is just gorgeous it is absolutely yeah, wow. gorgeous wow yeah so the, again the main goal ground the viewers in the time frame of the show the u.s in the mid-30s and it's a time you know global unrest fascism mm -hmm. is on the rise in europe 
there's the Great Depression in the United States. So there's this devastating social and economic impact in cities all across the country. So they had to find archival footage that showed these things. Like this is what's really amazing is this mm -hmm. isn't something that was created using actors or out of thin air. They're showing actual, you know, at the time, 80, 90 year old footage. Um, it's just wonderful. So this documentary footage also touches on the main theme of the show, the eternal conflict of good versus evil. They mm. bolster this with famous works of art, Michelangelo's Last Judgment, an etching by Gustave Doré of an angel fighting a dragon, Raphael's Saint Michael vanquishing Satan. So it's exploring all these themes from a Christian and art historian perspective. Like this is just so, there's so many layers of information wow. here. And the more you watch it, the more this starts to reveal itself. So in a way it's yeah. just as dense as the show itself, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It sounds like the titles are like the Rosetta Stone for the show. It, you know, really, just... it really was. And of course at the time, uh, when when you're watching the show, I mean, you don't know this, right? You know, there, right, there wasn't right. no one. All the 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 series, the two seasons, hadn't all been produced yet. There wasn't any way to binge watch it, so it's not like someone was hopping on Netflix <laughs> watching twelve episodes of this and saying, "Oh man, yeah, these credits really add up." <laughs> so mm -hmm. it really had to pique the viewers' interest to keep them coming back. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, this was almost 20 years ago. You know, you mentioned After Effects and that HBO is mm -hmm. kind of like, uh, like we get this type effect you guys are trying to do, but um, you got to use this specific program, After Effects, and this is going to take a while and means we have to do unique titles for every show, you know, so obviously this, this deeper aesthetic got hung up at the time, right? Well, basically right. this whole title sequence was nothing but effects like that i mean there was there was no well maybe can we compromise like if there was any sort of compromise it really wouldn't have worked right so mm -hmm. how did how did these guys do this so i don't want to get too in the weeds with with technical stuff but basically it was like what you were talking about it was photoshop it was mm -hmm. some digital rendering and it was compositing you know on whatever Macs or Avid systems or whatever they had at the time that they were using. But they were scanning transparencies of the famous pieces of art I mentioned. And each of these scans, because they had to go into these layers, the camera had to carry the viewer through these layers. Each of these specific images was up to 300 megabytes in size. So again, you might say, well, that's no big deal. You know, I have these thumb drives in my desk drawer mm -hmm, at work mm -hmm. that are, you know, gigs or whatever. But I mean, to manipulate a 300 megabyte image was no mean feat, right? Right, right. And, and yeah, to make it move, yeah. and particularly at that time, machines yeah. had to be crazy powerful. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, figured out a way, obviously, to do this. And then all the stock footage clips I mentioned earlier. They have things like Klan rallies. They have marches on Washington. All of these uh, events I mentioned, like the Golden Gate Bridge or Jesse Owens at the Olympics. So they had to find all these stock footage clips. They had to compile them and then digitally incorporate them into this sequence, right? So all mm -hmm. of this was very, very um, just, I can't even imagine the lift just the mm. vision, first of all, but then pulling the pieces together to actually make this happen. Oh, and by the way, do it in 90 seconds. <laughs> right, right, right. So, uh, but they pulled it off. And I mean, again, we encourage every listener to please visit our episode page so that uh, you can all um, just take a look at both of these works of art that we're talking about today because they are wonderful. Yeah, exactly, Elliot. Now, you know, I think we owe HBO a, a giant thank you for uh, allowing the, the artist for those shows as well as the opening credits to, to do what they do. If you're interested in more uh, opening credits and motion design and titles, the art of the title is a wonderful site. Uh, we'll include a link to this on uh, the episode page as well. And in learning about the Six Feet Under, and I'm sure the art of the title has some great things to say about Carnival as well. Oh, I don't doubt um, it. Yeah. I thought they, they, the way they expressed it, um, it, you know, it didn't sound like industry stuff. It sounded 
Uh, it was very poetic. Let me just read sort of a review of Six Feet Under opening title uh, from Art of the Title. Uh, it says, close-up vignettes of bodies, gruesome and fantastic landscapes mingle with parting hands and familiar metaphors of death and passage as the camera hovers with a gentle curiosity, pausing at times to search the sky for answers. A cold and muted color palette hangs over the sequence and muffles the warm imagery of clasped hands, framed memories, and the living. And yet, despite the presence of death in nearly every frame, beauty and wonder emerge. So I was like, wow, that is, that's a great way to articulate what this little mini movie is doing and mm -hmm. sounding like. Great turn of phrase, though, mini movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really what it is. It's a movie before the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and that I think both shows do it really well. I want to wrap up by just saying, you know, as someone who has worked in production design and broadcast design, there's always interesting behind the scenes stories that just become more funny and uh, they become folklore as time goes on because they're captured on film. And Six Feet Under is no different. You know, I mentioned that one of the um, main characters of the opening scene was the tree, uh, which was, <laughs> right. you know, dead <laughs> and propped up with wires. Um, also, another character of the, the, the we keep going back to in the opening sequence is the, the raven. Mm, yeah, and, right. Right, right. As a symbol for death. And what I learned is that they wanted a crow, but... The uh, Danny Yao said that proved to be the most difficult item because they're not legally allowed to film a crow. Why? Um, I don't, you know, I could not really find uh, the reason. And he says, it's weird, but true. Huh. Um, so what they did is they got a raven on a leash. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, which, like you do, you go get your raven on a leash and the trainer would just let it fly for these short, distances and then bring it back so that affected the use of it because you just see snippets of this raven mm -hmm. kind of flying across the the screen every now and then or you see it close-ups of its beak or its toes but the the raven probably got the best deal out of all of that it just had to work probably a few minutes and is internalized in these opening credits and he even said in the very first scene where you see it flying across the blank sky that was just stock footage that wasn't even the hired raven to do the crow's work <laughs> that's great i mentioned that uh there's a director's cut and definitely look at that and chosen for a reason uh, hbo said we just can't have that amount of work with the animated typography in every episode uh, and then they made a few other minor changes but uh, Danny Yout included those in the director's version, which I think are cool. I mentioned there is a scene um, that anyone who has seen the credits are familiar with, that uh, there's a gurney being pushed uh, down a hallway towards a white light. Uh, it's actually being pushed away from a white light and to a white light. That's, in, that's a kind of key bit of uh, talking about the patriarch of the family in the opening credits. Um, but when they were filming that in Danny Yout's director's cut, he actually uses a scene where he was the person pushing the gurney. It's cut from uh, the final HBO use, but you see this kind of dark figure lumbering along. And he said a funny thing about that was the cart handles on the gurney were so low, he had to hunch over and kind of waddle a bit. So it was a little bit like a penguin walk to push <laughs> this. And it looks, he says it looks like an old man, which, you know, kind of funny, adds character uh, to it. But, you know, those kind of stories I really love, like about the tree, about the the raven, about using the art director as uh, as talent. It's things like that when you go back and look at it that makes it a little bit richer for you. Uh, and I would say probably since the carnival um, credits were not live action, they were all uh, animated, you've got all that richness built from documented footage, uh, from layers and layers and layers of photographs and cards and things. So I imagine at the time, 
well, there was really nothing else like that. So both of these were really sort of breakthrough. And, and as mentioned, they, they both were recognized by the Emmys um, for their contributions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they definitely raised the bar in terms of not only what, what could be done, but what was possible in TV right, versus in right. film. Hey, Todd, this reminds me. I have a couple of, uh, a couple of thoughts as we wrap up. Sure. So the first thought is, um, well, if I were on the set of uh, the Six Feet Under shot, I think I would have named the holly tree uh, Bernie. He's dead. Bernie? He's propped up. It's just like one of our favorite movies, Weekend at Bernie's. (laughs) We spent the whole weekend shooting this. I think that (laughs) that should be the holly tree's name. You're right. So, um, and then my second thought is, uh, I don't know about you, but... uh, my glass is empty, and I think it's about time. Uh, you know what? I'm feeling rather magnanimous. You gonna buy? I'll think about it. Oh, okay. Well, that's as close as we've gotten so far to, for me getting a free drink. So I'll take you up on that. All right. Well, let's get to it, and uh, we'll see everyone back around the bar very soon. So, Jim, we got a problem with our podcast. Right. Nobody says it correctly. <laughs> no. Some people say how to fix it. Or how do you fix it? But think of it like this. Whatever the problem, we're in this together. How do we fix it? How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? Yeah. How do we fix it? The Solutions Show. From the political to the personal. Practical ideas for creative listeners. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Ideas that work. That's your radio voice, Richard. Oh, well, I know. (laughs) I love it. I couldn't do it to save my life. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.